0: Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Hamilton wants to crack down on bad landlords. We're also talking about your budgets, another beer tax, money laundering, a new name for the Hamilton Children's Aid Society, and divorce spiking in January. The GMH podcast begin now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, it's being called the first of its kind in Ontario, and it's happening right here in Hamilton. City has approved a bylaw to stop bad faith renovictions. Between 2017 and 2022, there has been nine, a 983% spike in renoviction notices, or N13s, issued to tenants. And according to the Director of Licensing and Bylaw Services, quote, the proposed bylaw would require all landlords citywide to obtain a renovation license from the city prior to commencing any renovation work that requires an N-13 notice to be issued to a tenant. We recognize as a local government, we can't prohibit a landlord from issuing an N-13, but we can use it as a starting point to obtain a municipal renovation license. If approved by council, which meets again later on this month, this new bylaw would start next year. Daniel Chen is the president of the Hamilton District Apartment Association and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Daniel, good morning. How are you?
2: Good morning, Rick. How does this new bylaw sit with you? Well, well it is the headlines of this week, uh, but you know we do think that it would add more problems already to the existing problems between landlords and tenants.
0: So what additional problems would this present to landlords?
2: Well, it is, you know, the license, license fees and and fines. It would put more strain on landlords. Uh, you know, it will help address the quote unquote bad state evictions, but it would be it would put more strain on all Hamilton Hamilton landlords, even the the the, the honest the ones uh the, doing the quote unquote honest evictions. And the good operators are in Hamilton.
0: So could, could you envision, because of this bylaw, fewer landlords perhaps investing in renovations that they want to make?
2: Well, it, well, if it's an additional cost for, for Hamilton landlords, it w- you know uh, to some, it may not be, uh, may no longer be economically or financially viable to, to continue uh, um, providing housing.
0: The cost of the license, however, is $715. That doesn't seem like an exorbitant amount.
2: $715 per, per unit, 125 to renew annually. And, of course, uh, it is a process to get engineer report. Time, you know, it, it, it takes time. And, of course, uh, yep, 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 as, as you mentioned, uh, the, the whole process.
0: So do you think the current process is working?
2: Well, 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 a year from now... They will be accept, expected to, act, to, to accept applications January 2025. Uh, so, so a lot of things can happen in between from now till then. Rick, we, as we have seen with uh, the, the, the new Westminster BC renovation that was enacted 2019 and then 2021 it was repealed. Uh, you know, the, the renovation bylaws took some parts of the Bill 97 and also what they learned from the new west minister uh, to, to to not have any conflicts uh, with with what was uh, you know stipulated in provincial when they amended the residential tenancy act and um, you know so we will yeah we will see uh you know how things will unfold um, but i do foresee it will add a lot more problems to the the the, the, the existing ones
3: Could
0: some of those problems be, and again, we're in discussion with Daniel Chin, the president of the Hamilton District Department Association, regarding Hamilton's new uh, renovation bylaw. Could some of those problems be a landlord is going to look at their units and think, you know, I'd like to make some renovations. I just can't afford the cost, the $715 cost per unit, as you said, to do so. And we'll see more and more units fall into disrepair. Is that what you're kind of forecasting?
2: Well, well. First of all, most of these uh, these these buildings built in 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, they're approaching you know that age, of 50 to 70 years old, and and some really are needed. Uh, these repairs or substantial repairs are needed in in these buildings. Um, so so it's not uh, surprised to see uh, you know uh, that as you mentioned the the, the nine hundred something percent increase with n thirteens now now Rick there are some who quote unquote bad faith evictions. that's a different case but there are many good many good housing providers in Hamilton, and of course uh, this new imposed bylaw goes for 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 all even the good ones and um and of course as what you have seen with um There's a renovation and there's a safe apartment building bylaws, which is equivalent to the rent safe Toronto. And when that was, um, you know, imposed in Toronto, uh, that, you know, the aftermath pretty much showed there was a lot of good good operators, uh, rental housing providers. But, uh, of course, uh, things did improve. And, uh, of course, it did help address uh, the bad ones which I believe is the intent in Hamilton as well
0: sure absolutely Daniel thank you for your uh, insight into this and your opinion on the topic I appreciate your time
2: okay thank you very much
0: Daniel Chin the president of the Hamilton District Department Association offering uh, his thoughts on this bad faith renovaviction bylaw and listen I think the, a new standard needs to happen and we're seeing and, and not all of the 983 percent spike in these renovaviction notices are bad faith renovationstions they simply aren't but those that do happen, they certainly hurt those tenants. And you can imagine the, the stress and the financial impact that they have to endure. It's not fun.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: As we know right now, the current proposed budget spike is at 7.9%. And that's going to have an impact on you and I and everyone else who lives in this community and we had Hamilton's Mayor Andrea Horvath on the show earlier this week and she too realizes the budget pressures that you are going to face.
3: I do want to reassure people that I know it's really hard out there right now. Uh, I know it's hard times and I know that it's really expensive uh, to just get through everyday life these days and we need to make sure that our, our property taxes are manageable. What
0: expenses are you going to have to trim from your household budget? That's our poll question of the day today. Is it TV streaming service, a newspaper subscription, fewer restaurant trips, or other? I was hoping for many more categories. We can only do four on the X poll. Got a post on X from Allison who says, I mean, for me, it amounts to an extra $300 per year, and thankfully that makes no difference to my budget. And there might be a lot of you out there thinking, OK, that, yeah, I, I'm going to have to pay more for taxes, but I'm still OK. I'm not going to I'm not at the point where I have to cut anything. We do know a lot of people are in that boat. If you're one of those, I'd love to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900 on your cell phone. Maybe it's your cell phone bill. and You're thinking, do I need all this data? Do I need the, the mega plan that I have? Send me your thoughts on email as well, rick at 900chml.com. By the way, on X, the most popular choice right now is fewer trips to the restaurant. You're cutting your discretionary spending by not going to the restaurant. Email from Frank. Again, the email, rick at 900chml.com. For me, a long-deserved retiree, it is an unfortunate back-off to taking the holidays my wife and I have always dreamed of being able to afford, along with any excessive drives to anywhere. Mind-boggling it is that, with gas prices curtailing many commuters, what impact that has already caused to automatic restraint of personal budgets. So Frank looking at his trip list, wish list, saying, I I can't do it. Sharon on the text line, 905-645-3221. How much is the costly light rail transit contributing to our tax increase? Something no one will be able to afford by the time it's built. Sharon looking ahead down the road to other budget impacts. Text from James. As a person that has been rent evicted and a tradesman that does work for property companies all over southern Ontario can tell you that the owner will spend the money to upgrade their units, as most spend 5 k to renovate and increase the rent by $800 to $1,000 a month, they will fire out how to pass that on to the tenants. Or I guess figure out. Uh, James making a comment on the renovation bylaw. Dan on the text line, 905 645 3221, on how Hamilton's proposed 7.9% budget increase, at least at this point, how it's going to affect his household budget. Dan says, I'm not cutting back. I'm just hoping to win with those Lotto Max tickets from CHML. <laughs> Ten, good luck. Have a great day, Rick. You as well. Mike comes in and says, I might chop my Spectator subscription two days a week. Might keep it until March. Okay, I mean, that's an option as well. You're looking at all your discretionary spending sam writes raising taxes eight percent going to hurt lots of businesses some might have to close that's the ripple effect right if we're being taxed more that means less of our money is going to be spent in the economy 905-645-3221 how is the current proposed property tax hike here in hamilton which stands at about eight percent how's that going to impact your household budget Got a really extensive text from Paul in Stony Creek. He says, Rick, first focus on the people who pay the taxes. Special interest second. Suggested tax savings. Check out Paul's list from Stony Creek. Number one, why does a person who drives a car not have to pay $2 for meter parking just because they put a handicap sticker on the dash? All should pay. He writes, city wants to reduce cars and encourage transit, metered parking should be $5. No free bus passes, everyone should contribute. If you can't afford it, we have programs that you apply for a subsidy. Here's another of Paul's points, suggestions to save on taxes. All camps move to the industrial area. This would be homeless camps. Move to the industrial area to reduce destruction of city property, like the $500,000 fire in a park facility. There is bus service there to get around, move portable support services to the site. Another of Paul's idea, community services passes like swimming programs, etc., reviewed and increased by at least inflation. It is currently $55 for a senior pass. The Y is around $250 per year. And we've talked about increasing user fees. The problem is, if you do so, Fewer people say, ah, I'm not going not gonna to register this year, and now we're hurting the city's bottom line, and the city's going to say, oh, well, we're not making that revenue. we got to find it through something else. That's something else being your taxes. It's a double-edged sword. Paul also says, remember, not only the 8% tax, water and sewer charges went up, and they're looking for a new rain tax. Very true. And he also says, cutting all restaurant outings for 2024, less alcohol, going to revisit cable streaming for savings, revisit cell phone costs, keep a closer look at flyer sales to keep food costs low. Why are we as taxpayers having to always cut when there are no cuts at City Hall? Paul getting the last word on this topic. We'll continue this conversation on a future edition of GMH. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Guess what? As if we're not already paying enough taxes, whether it's here in Hamilton or across the province or federally, the beer tax is set to go up again. Last year at this time, you'll recall that we were talking about this, and the beer tax here in Canada was going to go up by 6.3%. The government ultimately said, okay, you know, we'll cap it at 2% for one year, and then it's going up again. Well, and that figure now is 5%. And so, to no one's surprise, iconic Canadian beer lovers Bob and Doug McKenzie are miffed. Good day, I'm Bob McKenzie and this is my brother Doug.
1: How's it going, eh? And happy 2002-4, eh? Yeah, it's a beer year, eh? Only happens every hundred years, like a total
4: eclipse. So why would the government raise the beer tax in a beer
0: year? Yeah, how about we put a total eclipse on the beer tax, Ottawa? Bob and Doug certainly on board. So too is C.J. Healy, the president of Beer Canada, who joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. C.J., good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm okay, but I mean, we're, we're dipping into our bank account here, there, and everywhere. And if we want to consume more beer, we're going to have to pay a little more money, or at least the industry will as well. What, what is happening?
5: Well, in 2017, the government of the day increased uh, beer, wine, and spirit taxes uh, by 2%. But they did something really sneaky. Uh, at the same time, they introduced an automatic inflation-based increase that would go into effect April 1st every year. And the reason they did that, Uh, was that they thought we were in this Goldilocks economy where inflation would be 1% to 2% forever and that they thought it was a level that the industry and consumers could live with and it would give the government a little bit more revenue to fund their priorities. Uh, But the crystal ball (laughs) wasn't very good. And as we all remember last year, inflation spiked and it hasn't really uh, leveled off enough to uh, make this policy make any sense under the current circumstances.
0: So does that tax, is that being paid by beer makers and then passed on to consumers? How is it working? So it is a production
5: tax. So it's the first tax that's imposed on a brewer at the time and point of production. And ideally uh, it is included in the price of the product. But Rick, as you know, everybody is really feeling squeezed and uh, brewers have faced, you know, huge cost increases, uh, Barley is up probably 40%, packaging costs 30%, freight costs have doubled, and they're, they had a hard time passing even about half of those costs into the price of the product. Um, consumers just don't feel that they can pay more for uh, beer and certainly our wholesale customers, uh, bars and restaurants can't either. So it's a real dilemma. Um, brewers are facing these increased costs and it's just the wrong time to, for the government to pile on new taxes that you know we don't know
0: how we're gonna absorb. How much tax is poured into a bottle or a can of beer?
5: So in Canada, we have the dubious distinction of having the highest uh, beer taxes in G7. So about 50% of the price someone is paying for a beer today are taxes already. So we're we're not asking for a handout here, right? We're already paying more than our share. It's just the wrong time uh, to impose the biggest tax increase on Canadians in the last 40 years.
0: C.J. Healy is the president of Beer Canada. You can find out more at hereforbeer.ca. We're talking about the beer tax projected to go up nearly 5% this year. When does this happen? So it automatically
5: increases on April 1st. Uh, so the window to fix this is really this year's federal budget. Uh, no date announced, but let's say probably the third week of March is the most likely date uh, where we're going to have to have a decision uh, whether or not the government is really crazy enough to impose this tax at this time.
0: And does it mean that the the price of beer will go up 5%? Is the, is the maker going to pass that entire tax on the consumer?
5: You know, ideally, they would in a a perfect world from their perspective. uh, But I just don't see that happening. I I think the consumer just is not in a position to pay more. Um, So what it will do is probably force some brewers to absorb uh, more than they would like. And uh, currently, about 53% of small Ontario brewers are losing money. So the the fear is uh, that this will just push them over uh, and, and more brewers than necessary over the um the brink
0: I would imagine the margins are quite thin for those craft Brewers as opposed to the you know the the big brewing companies uh, are we going to see some say you know what we just can't afford to you know swallow another tax here
5: we're already seeing it. Uh, we're seeing some closures. Uh, we are seeing some for sale signs. Uh, we are seeing, you know, strategic partnerships, uh, joint uh, distribution agreements, everything possible to try to make their businesses uh, more efficient. Uh, but. Uh, after three years of COVID uh, and depressed sales and higher taxes, it's really, really challenging for a lot of our members.
0: Uh, CJ, is it just beer? Is is wine and, and other alcoholic beverages being taxed or, or going through these tax increases as well?
5: It is all beer, wine and spirits. So yes, this is much bigger than just uh, Canadian brewers. It also impacts Canadian wineries and Canadian distilleries as well.
0: So I'm assuming I mean the the lobby effort is quite large to say hey federal government you got to stop this have you received any response from Ottawa
5: We have a huge amount of sympathy in Ottawa and I am very much optimistic that if we had a vote in parliament we would have almost unanimous support not to impose a nearly 5% beer tax increase but the the challenge is to get through all the noise and the fog in Ottawa because there are so many issues, uh, large, large, big, big issues. Uh, And so we're trying to get through uh, that this is also important. Uh, And so that's where Bob and Doug comes in, right? Uh, They can uh, raise the level of discourse to a national level and force people in Ottawa to say, is this the right time to raise beer taxes or not?
0: You can go to hereforbeer.ca to find out more information. CJ, thanks for the time this morning. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, Rick. Appreciate it. CJ Healy is the president of Beer Canada. You know, the price of everything is going up, even beer and wine and spirits. Come on.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900
0: CHML. I'll tell you what's red hot money laundering using online gambling websites. Yeah, it's apparently become a gold mine for organized crime and other criminals. The Financial Transaction and Reports Analysis Center of Canada, also known as Fintrack. Say, a common tactic used by criminals is to buy prepaid cards or vouchers using dirty money and then deposit those funds into online gambling accounts, then withdraw that money under the guise of winnings. Hmm. Marvin Ryder is a professor in the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Marvin, good morning. How are you?
4: I'm just great, thank you. Glad to be with you.
0: Tracking suspicious transactions seems very tricky. I mean, how can you prove that the deposits are proceeds of crime?
4: Right. So uh, if you don't mind, let's just talk about how FinTrack would normally do this. Normally, I'm a nefarious individual and I've got all of these uh, proceeds from my perhaps drug money or other things that I'm doing. I go to try to deposit in a bank. And so in the banking system, we track any deposit. Uh, or any withdrawal of $10,000 or more. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you can't get around that by doing $9,999, but, you know, they're pretty good at tracking these things and saying, oh, no, look, that looks suspicious. Maybe that person's involved in some dirty dealing of some sort. All right, now we come along to online gambling. And the online gambling companies totally by accident have set up a system that is perfect for these people. What do I mean by that? Well, if I'm going to do online gambling, I have to deposit some money into an account, so I can place my bets. And the online gambling people have made that really easy. You can do a transfer from your deposit from your bank, excuse me, you can do a transfer from PayPal, you can do a transfer from here or there somewhere else. And so great, you got your account, you place some bets. And let's assume you win a couple of times. Well, now, how do I withdraw my money? Oh, that's easy, too. You can withdraw to all kinds of things, like a gift card, or you can withdraw to PayPal, or you can send it to one of your offshore banks. It's so easy to gamble. And I am absolutely certain the people behind online gambling never, ever thought about this being used as money laundering. They made it easy for people to do the uh, do the gambling they didn't realize how easy they would make it for nefarious individuals. So this report came out yesterday. Now the question is really, what is the online gambling people going to do to tighten things up? And here, a difference than the bank is uh, I may not take my nefarious uh, uh, profits and deposit $10,000 into account or $100,000 into account. That would be too obvious. So what if I only put in $500 at a time? Maybe I've got six or seven different gambling accounts, and of course the name I use on the account isn't a person's name. It's you know Cha Cha Guy One Hundred, <laughs> uh, according to my email address. It, it it will be much harder to track. Fintrack still is able to look at the patterns and say we think some of this is nefarious, but how do you transfer that to the online gaming people? It's it is an interesting question.
0: Cha Cha Guy One Hundred sounds like a fun guy. What is yes, he does. <laughs> what is the impact on legal on, on online gambling? Because we know this is being done with illegal and, and offshore gambling sites. What's the impact here, and are are we expecting any changes to be made?
4: Well, that's again that's the interesting question. Uh, when it comes to online gambling, there are certainly sites that have been authorized by the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission, Commission OLG. And presumably, OLG could say to those people, okay, we need to tighten things up. You need to only accept money from these legitimate sources. You only need to pay out money to these legitimate sources, and so on and so forth. But thanks to the internet, you can use all kinds of online gaming sites, many of which are not regulated at all in Canada. So we can imagine American sites, but there are sites set up by many of the Caribbean nations to allow online gambling. Everybody seems to want to do some of this. And we don't have any jurisdiction in, in sites based uh, outside of Canada. So even if we tighten things up here, it doesn't mean these nefarious individuals still can't find a way to launder their money through these international sites uh, unless you get international cooperation. So then again, I can imagine as we negotiate treaties or renegotiate treaties or update treaties, whether it's NAFTA or something on a world level, We might try to work on this, but it's hard to do. And and again, one of the great things about the power of the Internet, uh, there are, I'm sure, lots of other loopholes out there in ways that people can transfer funds that we didn't imagine. Not the least of those being cryptocurrency. That's why everybody loves crypto. There are no records. You can't really track what everybody's doing. So that has been the really the biggest choice for nefarious
0: individuals. I haven't seen a dollar amount on this, but I'd imagine it's into the billions.
4: Well, certainly um, uh, it would certainly be in the millions. I don't know if it gets to the billions, because, again, you have to be a fairly sophisticated and and nefarious individual. Not only do you have to have illegal proceeds, but then you have to have the patience to try to work this system. Uh, But nonetheless, yeah, I don't think they can actually put a dollar value on this, how much is going through. The report yesterday was really to alert us that this sort of stuff was going on. And then I think they're hoping to spur government agencies, whether they are federal or provincial, into taking some kind of action to at least tighten up the system and reduce the amount of this uh, money laundering that's going on.
0: Fascinating chat, as always, with Marvin Ryder from McMaster University. Marvin, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Great, thank you. Mr. Ryder is a professor in the Degroot School of Business at McMaster University.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: The Hamilton Children's Aid Society has launched a new brand, including a new name, to reflect a new direction that the organization is taking to support children, youth, and families in this community. The Children's Aid Society is now called Hamilton Child and Family Supports. And the executive director is Brian Schoen, and Brian joins us now on GMH. Brian, good morning. How are you?
6: Good morning, Rick. I'm doing great, thank you.
0: Now, this is more than just a name change, right?
6: Uh, yes, um, it's really um, just part of our our, our journey um, as we've moved forward as a children's aid society. Um, we know that um, uh, we needed to change and do some things differently, and so we've been doing that over the last four years, uh, and the time was right to really you know, reach back out to the community and ask them, um, what is it that uh, you need us to be moving forward in the city of Hamilton? And so that was the beginning of the process of looking at not only a name change, but some transformational change for the organization.
0: So why was there a need for change? What what had to change?
6: Yeah, well, I think one of the things that we we know is that, um, you know, Black uh, and Indigenous uh, children and families are overrepresented in the child welfare system. That's um, one of the things um, that we needed to look at. Um, we also know that um, moving from sort of a uh, an approach which um, is telling people what to do, that uh, integrating our service into the community more uh, was something that was going to be incredibly important for us to move forward and really to be able to meet the needs of Hamiltonians um, moving forward. And uh, so um, we didn't uh, take our own thoughts um, for that uh, directly, but uh, what we did is we went back out to the community and asked them what they felt we should be for the next 10 or 20 years.
0: And what did you hear?
6: Um, what we heard was that, um, you know, that we needed to change um, and that there was a strong need for uh, our organization in the community. Uh, we heard that uh, doing things differently and coordinating and collaborating with community partners, local community members, collaborating more with families, Um, was something that was going to be important in order to reduce risks uh, to children moving forward. And so uh, we started to put uh, strategies in place to address those types of issues.
0: Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Brian Schoen, the executive director of Hamilton Child and Family Supports, formerly known as the Hamilton uh, Children's Aid Society. With this new direction, what, if anything, will be different? Hmm. Well,
6: I think... um, When I talk about transformational change, there's a lot of things that uh, we've already changed over the last four years. So we have had a strategic vision as an organization uh, for the last four years, focusing on supporting children and families in the community. Um, Many people don't realize that uh, our organization actually serves 99% of uh, our families in the community. Um, We also have a strong role to play still about the safety of children as well. So when children are unsafe, um, we have a need to Um, Sometimes have them, um, you know, not be in the care of of a caregiver for a period of time. But our focus is really back on getting the community involved, making sure that we have family involved, um, meeting with them and trying to develop a plan as quickly as possible uh, in order to uh, support the safe return to of a child back to that community uh, as quickly as possible. And we've been pretty successful at that. Um, We've seen a 30 percent reduction in the number of uh, children and youth in care over the last five years and we've also seen a 50% reduction in the number of families um, that we are taking to court Um, so we're working more voluntarily Um, and that wouldn't be possible though without strong commitments and connections to community Um, so two of the partnerships that uh, we have really focused on um, in the community over the last few years is a partnership with Empowerment Squared um, for Black um, and uh, newcomer families and also uh, focusing with Hamilton Regional Indian Centre as well uh, in supporting um, the work uh, of the local community uh, of the of the Indigenous community uh, moving forward as well. So they're strong partners. We have many other strong partners uh, um, within uh, the city of Hamilton, but um, those were two areas where we knew we were overrepresented, and so uh, that's where we started.
0: You mentioned that fewer and fewer children over the last number of years are being removed from. Uh, unsafe situations in homes and, and fewer cases are going to court as well. So what type of supports are most in need right now?
6: Yeah, this is um, where uh, child welfare um, and Hamilton Child and Family Supports uh, continues to need the help of everyone in the community. Um, a lot of the families that we serve uh, are struggling with um, housing insecurity, um, food insecurity, poverty, um mental health challenges, all of the things that I think as a community we've been talking about uh, since um, we've kind of come out of the the COVID um, years. And um, we're seeing an increased need uh, for those services in our community uh, as we move forward. So uh, I wouldn't say that that isn't a challenge for us as an entire community. Um, The number of supports and the number of services that are in place currently are not enough for our community. And so um, one of the things we continue to do is advocate along with our partners um, to make sure that we have the right services at the right time for children and families. That reduces the likelihood that um, a child needs to be removed. If the families have the right supports at the right time, um then families don't go into crisis in the same way as they do when we have late late help so um, that's one of the things that we're really trying to do as well
0: in our final minute together uh, we know that hamilton is a much more diverse city now than ever before how how big of a factor is that in what you're doing now with this metamorphosis into hamilton child and family supports
6: yeah i I think that's critical and it's critical for hamilton we know that uh, that hamilton is is changing and becoming more diverse every day Um, And I won't be surprised if um, that continues to um, happen at an accelerated rate moving forward Um, as our community changes, the need for services also changes um, so that we make sure that um, we're able to connect with all citizens in Hamilton uh, and make sure that we're able to have a customized approach to um, different cultures, different needs. Um, And each community often has different needs and each family has different needs. So um, we need to be very flexible um, in our service provision and understand then how we can help put supports in place uh, early on so that uh, we don't get a greater crisis later on. And that's um, one of the significant reasons for um, our name changing to supports.
0: Brian, thanks for the time this morning. Good luck with uh, the new name and the new focus, and uh, hopefully we can help uh, many more families this year and beyond. Thanks for the time. Thanks so much.
6: I really appreciate it. Have a great day.
0: You too. Brian Schoen is the executive director of Hamilton Child and Family Supports, formerly the Hamilton Children's Aid Society. You're
1: listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Talking about divorces because some way, somehow, January seems to be a busy month. There is uh, an annual surge at this time of the year when it comes to people inquiring about divorces. Well, someone picks up the phone, or maybe starts an online chat or sends an email to say, how does this all work? I'm thinking about doing something. Need made a change in my life and my relationship. And are couples still getting a divorce over Zoom? We know that during the pandemic, Zoom absolutely erupted. Any sort of online virtual team meeting did. And, well, the, the, the family law circuit kind of embraced that. Russell Alexander is an Ontario family lawyer, founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers, and is a guest of ours right now on 900 CHML. Russell, good morning. How are you?
3: Good morning, Rick. Good to be with you today.
0: Why is January a busy month for divorce lawyers? Is it Does it uh, do with New Year's resolutions? Is that a factor?
3: Well... In family law, Rick, we, there's usually seasonality. Which I mean, I mean by that is there's usually times of the year that are always busy. You know, back to school disputes, uh, kids coming off summer holiday. There's a busy period during the Christmas rush when people can't decide how they're going to decide divide up the, the holiday season. But, but clearly, the busiest period for divorce lawyers is January. Um, you know, we call it Divorce Day in Canada and there's a number of reasons why it gets so busy probably the big three would be people choose to divorce perhaps in the fall november december but they want to wait and give their kids one more christmas before um, before they divorce so sort of preserve that memory the second reason rick you know credit card bills start coming in in january a lot of people overspend and um, financial stress on marriages can be tough that usually leads to breakdown. and i think the third big reason rick is some people just want a fresh start right you know you, you start the new year you hear about everybody making new year's resolutions losing weight um, connecting more with friends some people decide it's time for a new relationship and decide it's time to move on and get a divorce
0: you have uh, ten main reasons for the spikes in divorce inquiries in January. Kind of uh, brushed on a few of them. W- yeah. One of them, one of them that I I really found interesting was the the family feuds aspect to right. this, which plays a part during the holidays.
3: <laughs> it's nice to see them come, but it's nicer <laughs> to see them go in many many respects. Um, yeah, deep seated family feuds uh, when it comes to marriages, you know. Oftentimes, people are going to choose their family over their spouse, uh, depending on what the dispute is. Mm-hmm. And that can lead to a rift. Other couples choose the spouse first, which means they're not going to be as connected or see their family as often. So family feuds actually kind of erupt over Christmas time because everybody's spending all of this time together. Uh, extended family come in, come in. Usually there's some history there. Or some stress from um, incidences that occurred prior to the relationship or childhood stress. And all that, yeah, everybody stressed it at Christmas time to begin with, but that just adds to it. You mentioned too much
0: togetherness, and we certainly saw right. that during the height of the pandemic, right? Like people were, more and more people were working from home. Couples were yep. always around each other, and that led to, you know, arguments about whatever the case is. And people figured out, yeah, I don't really like this person anymore.
3: This is a lot more common than you would think, right? We see that we prior to the pandemic, we used to see this with married couples all the time. Uh, and then one one of the you know one would be stay at home and then the other spouse would retire and they're all excited they' plan their retirement and they spend all day together and realize they don't like each other that much. They're able to stay together because somebody went to work for eight hours a day and the 24 hours a day is too much. yeah. So Christmas is sort of a microcosm of that. Um, spending too much time together with your spouse sometimes uh, pushes one or both of them over the edge and they decide uh, that person's not right for them. We're talking about
0: a a surge in divorce inquiries in January with our guest, Russell Alexander, an Ontario family lawyer, also the author of Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Divorce, and has also penned a new book, AI and the Legal Profession. Uh, Another main reason why divorce inquiries spike this month is the delayed decisions. You mentioned that you know families are waiting for that one last Christmas, you know the, the new year arrives, whether it's a resolution or something they've had in their mind for uh, you know a long time, which also means a new beginning as well. People sometimes just want a fresh start.
3: That's right. Um, sometime, yeah, I'll, I'll see people in September, October, and just for a consultation, they may be getting some pre-separation legal advice, trying to understand how the process works. And I can see that the, the, the decision's been triggered, but for whatever reason they're gonna wait to the new year. Um, mainly the, the main reason for that, uh, I think is when for families with children, they want to, you know, keep it as peaceful and as calm for the children as they can. They don't want the children to remember Christmas is the time that mom and dad divorced. They want it to be a happy time. So quite often people put off their decisions by one, two months. Um, and, and make a fresh start in the new year. And they're just putting their children's best interests first. So they're going to tough it out with the in laws. They're going to tough it out with their spouse. Uh, but the decision has already been baked in. They're moving on as soon as January comes.
0: In our final minute together, are couples still getting divorced on Zoom?
3: Yeah, technology has really improved the court system, Rick. Uh, just think about a traditional day in court, you'd have to prepare yourself, drive to court, maybe an hour or two, find parking, go through security, wait in a busy courtroom, and then maybe have your case called five hours later. It, it's insane, right? But that's the, that's the way the court system operated. The big t- concern was delay and expense. With Zoom divorce, what I call Zoom divorce, it means using zoom or skype or some kind of technology to log on to the courtroom remotely you can do it from the safety and privacy of your own home or you can take an hour off work to your court hearing have the judge give you your recommendation and then get back to your day so you don't have to worry about transportation costs daycare costs losing a day of work if you're a victim of domestic violence you can do it in the safety of your own home with a support worker and you're not paying your lawyer seven hours to sit around the courthouse. You just pay them for the time that you're in the hearing. So I'm a big fan of it. Courts have adopted it. They're trying to bring the lawyers back to in-person hearings. So we're seeing some by Zoom, some by in-person hearings. So it's it's an evolution, but it's one of those silver linings we want to preserve in terms of the efficiency from the pandemic. Yeah,
0: there's so many pluses that you identified. Russell, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
3: Thanks, Rick. Have a good morning. You too.
0: Russell Alexander, family lawyer, founder of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers and also the author of Everything You Always Wanted to Know